0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: In unique power, you would speak to our human hearts. You would teach us. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to draw near to you and to appreciate you, to thank you, to love you. Teach us the scripture this morning, I pray, Lord, to move in our hearts. I thank you for the privilege of gathering with your church around the world, one body, under one head. We give you glory for doing that work. And now here in this particular place, we ask you to be present in power. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The middle of Psalm 67 reads, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. A resounding, glorious call for great, heartfelt worship of the Lord among all of the nations of the earth. Let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. Worldwide worship and worldwide delight Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. You talk about hope. Psalms about that hope. Worldwide worship of and delight in the God of Israel. From end to end, from corner to corner, the whole world, all of the Gentile world, Wait a minute. How in the world is that going to happen? From corner to corner of the Gentile world? The time that the psalmist puts pen to paper, so to speak, the Gentile nations do not offer sacrifice to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They they don't even know him. How is that going to become reality? How is that going to happen? The Gentiles are aliens and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. They are far off from the covenants of promise. And the Old Testament says that God uniquely blesses those with whom He is in covenant. And then it also seems to say that He's got a worldwide agenda. He's uniquely blessing those with whom he is in covenant, and he's got a worldwide agenda, the Gentile nations. How are those things going to come together? How is that tension going to be resolved? That's a bit of a mystery. And the answer to that mystery is itself a mystery that no one had ever thought of. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue through the book of Ephesians. This morning we're beginning in Ephesians chapter 3. And three, one is a directly connected verse to the end of chapter 2. We saw last week that Paul has been kind of summing up his lengthy discussion of the Jew and the Gentile relationship. In verses 19 to 22, we're saying, Therefore, since God has brought the Gentiles close, now we are formed together. We are in one body, full citizens together. Together fashioned to be one new holy temple in which God's presence dwells in power and in glory by His Spirit. Jew, Jew, believing Jew and believing Gentile together are that one new temple. Therefore, for this reason, 3-1, chapter 3 verse 1, Paul's going to do something. Because you are to be God-saturated people, therefore I, Paul, am going to do something. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God will give you grace to be this kind of people that you are supposed to be. That's where he's going. But if you look at your English translations, you'll notice that most, if not all of them, have a dash at the end of verse 1. It's not in the original, but it's trying to clue us into something that our text for this morning, especially verses 2 to 6 and following, is actually a tangent. It's a rabbit trail that Paul runs down here. He's getting ready to do something. He's getting ready to pray. Because of what he says God's goal for us is, he's going to pray that God would give us grace to accomplish that. And he comes back to that goal in verse 14. Look ahead into chapter 3, verse 14 for a minute. You'll see the same phrase, for this reason. He picks up there with what he was intending to do. That's the end of the tangent. And he begins to pray that God would give grace We'll get back to that in a couple weeks. But for now, back in verse 1, we notice that Paul said something there that kind of launched him off into a bit of a tangent. He describes himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul always thought of himself as a slave or as owned by or possessed by the Lord. He grasped something that all of us would do well to in the forefront of our minds, all of our lives are owned by the Lord. He has grasped us and taken us captive. We belong to him. Paul always saw himself that way. But here in this verse, he's got a little bit more of a unique focus because as he wrote this letter, this letter to the Ephesians, he was actually literally in prison, probably in Rome. And what landed him there was the preaching of the message Verses 11 to 22, things we've been talking about already. Christ had commissioned him to preach a message of blessing to the Gentiles, and most of the Jews of that day did not like that. They reacted against him, put him in prison. And as Paul states this, he realizes that some of his readers may not know all the details regarding this, regarding his his backstory, if you will. life and what he's done and what's gotten him to where he is. And so he takes off on a little detour this morning into our passage. In essence, what he's going to do is going to explain a little bit about how it is that Psalm 67 becomes reality. He's going to give some more of the story to that. We're going to be focusing on verses 2 to 6, in which Paul elaborates on this central theme. Thank God for the mystery of the gospel and its blessing. He wants to cause heart change in us. So he wants us to thank God for the mystery of the gospel and its blessing. Thank him, worship him, treasure him because he answered the mystery of how the nations can be glad in the God of Israel. He's answered that in the gospel. It's a great mystery. We are to see it, to understand it, and then to thank Him, to worship Him, to treasure Him, to trust Him, to give ourselves to Him. Seeing Him and seeing what He has done in this great gospel is what we've been about for the last several months. You recall when we began, I read this quote from a particular writer about how seeing the gospel as it's presented in Ephesians is critical for the American church today, you recall me reading that quote a couple of times? It's critical because it will change how we think about God. It will change how we think about us and our relationship. And here's another aspect of that this morning. We'll look at this gospel presented here in Ephesians. We'll see how God has worked. Yes, Paul's been doing these things. and Paul's going to talk about himself, but behind it is the active God. God has worked to bring together Jew and Gentile. And he's done so in the gospel. This morning I'm going to make two observations about the mystery of the gospel. One a little longer from verses 2 to 5, and one a little more compact in verse 6. Before I get to that, let me read the text. Reading Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles... This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Our first observation about this mystery of the gospel is addressed in verses 2 to 5. God has brought to you the mystery of the gospel. God has brought to you to the Gentiles, to the Ephesians, to our church, and to you individually. He has brought to you the mystery of the gospel. He has acted to do that. Now this term mystery right away comes up here. It appears several times in this passage. I'm using it all the time. Let's begin to define it just a little bit. We're going to get in a little more detail when we get to verse 6. But because this term mystery is kind of mysterious... Perhaps it would be helpful to talk about a little bit. It's used in a variety of different places in the New Testament. It's in the book of Revelation. It's in the Gospels. Several of Paul's letters and elsewhere. It occurs six times here in this book. Let's look at a few of those. In Colossians, for instance, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's also, the mystery is Christ in In whom is all knowledge and wisdom. Here in Ephesians, in chapter 1, we saw that the mystery was pertaining to God's mysterious will that is carried out in Christ to one day, at the fullness of time, to bring all of the creation back to heal under Christ's authority. That mysterious will of God, remember that? Here in this section, it's just the mystery of Christ, or the mystery about Christ. In Ephesians 5, the mystery is the union between Christ, the groom, and the church, His bride, that's mirrored by the human relationship. The mystery is that union. In chapter 6, it's just the mystery of the gospel that Paul longs to preach. That last phrase is what I'm grabbing onto this morning, the mystery of the gospel. And if you put all these different usages together, and and others as well, you don't come up with, half a dozen or a dozen different mysteries you actually come up with a half a dozen or a dozen different aspects of one great central mystery different aspects fitted to their respective contexts but all pointing to one central mystery there is one mystery the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ a mystery in which God became man not the other way around God became man. A mystery in which this incarnation led to the cross in which this God-man died to pay for sin of other people. A mystery in which after this crucifixion, this Messiah, this crucified Messiah, was raised A mystery in which his death abolishes the law of Israel and therefore joins Jew to Gentile in one new body. A mystery in which one day all of the creation will be brought back under Christ and evil will be judged and removed. It is a profound mystery. If you think through all the different details of that mystery, who in the world could imagine that? Who could dream that up? like maybe 10,000 religions in the world and none of them come close. It's profound. And God has graciously, sovereignly acted to bring this mystery, to bring this message of the Gospel to us. As we turn to the text, we begin to see Paul talking about that. Paul begins by explaining about how God went about acquiring for Himself choosing and bringing to himself some unique, particular individuals. Those first century apostles and prophets that we saw last week in verse 20. God picked them out like a builder selecting the stones would be the foundation of a house. Paul's going to tell us a bit of his story, and it's unique. It is his story, but it's representative of all the different and the various details will be different, of course, but it's representative of all the different stories of all the apostles and prophets. God has gone about the process of acquiring some particular individuals. He writes in verse 1, he's a prisoner of Christ, and then moves right on to verse 2, assuming, perhaps, you know, perhaps you've heard of the stewardship of grace given to me for you. You know, there's a reason that I'm in the situation that I'm in, says Paul. Because God was up to something. God did something in my life. He's worked something out. It's as if he said to me, Paul, I've got a stewardship for you. I've got a mission, a job, a task, an assignment. I'm picking you to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Now discharge this task carefully and faithfully, Paul. And I did. And that's what's landed me here. And it was all God's grace to me. God drafted Paul into his service from the first moments of his conversion. He struck him blind and then he brought to him Ananias to heal him and then shortly thereafter he commissioned him to go to the Gentiles among whom in the words of Christ he would suffer much for my name. That was Paul's stewardship to carry a message to the Gentiles, to the nations. Those words actually are the same. To the nations be glad. Worship. Rejoice. It's possible. Let me tell you how. God selected Paul to go do that. And he selected him to go suffer in the process. And Paul said, That was God's grace given to me. Look closely at that. It does not say that Paul was stewarding or managing God's grace, the grace wasn't what he stewarded, the grace led to the stewardship. Now, a bunch of people do interpret it that way, as if the stewardship is of the grace. And the NIV translation, if you're looking at verses 2 and 3, kind of hints that way also. And of course, the statement is true, that Paul was talking about God's grace. It's just not what he's saying here. Look down at verse 7 for a minute. Verse 7 is a restatement of verse 2. And it makes clear that the stewardship itself is the result of God's grace. Verse 7, Paul was made a minister of the gospel. It's parallel to that stewardship. Parallel to an apostle. He was made a minister by or according to the gift of God's grace given to me, he says. God gave Paul grace. Grace that saved him. And grace that gave him a stewardship. Grace is at the very beginning of this process it wasn't as if these guys these apostles and prophets were sitting around and they were having a little talk and they figured out you know we should we should just go start talking to people in and of themselves Paul's making something clear what got me on this path at the very beginning of this process grace of God the grace of God gave me a stewardship he claimed me for a reason He gave to me, and by extension to each of these foundational apostles and prophets, He gave to us a particular job. They were to receive and to care for and to carry forth a particular, unique, special message, a mystery made known to Paul by revelation. Verse 3. The mystery of Christ revealed to His holy apostles and prophets By the Spirit, verse 5. God graciously selected these men, and then the next thing He did was He revealed something to them. And it had to be revealed because it was a mystery. They couldn't figure it out. It was unknown. It wasn't clear. It was confusing. Now, it wasn't a mystery in the sense of like a riddle or something where... It's all right there, and you know half of us can look at a riddle and go, ah, I get it, I see it, and the other half don't. Nobody got it. It wasn't like a television murder mystery where all the clues are there, and if you're just paying attention and you're observant, you can figure out who done it. Like Columbo, who of course is always observant and is always paying attention and always figures out who did it. Not like that. Nobody figured out what was going on. It's not like a private club's secret rites of initiation that draws a line between those who are on the inside and are are privy to the special revelation and those on the outside are not. And it draws a line between the two. None of those things. The Bible describes the message that Paul and his co-laborers were stewards of as a mystery because nobody got it. Nobody. It was completely unknown the sons of men in other generations, says verse 5. Entirely. Now the clues are there. Maybe not all the clues, but there are a number of clues in the Old Testament. That's clear. But it's not just partially known. You can't just think about it and figure it out. Paul didn't come to this by close Bible study. Revelation. Supernatural revelation. God had to work because in the end in the final analysis though the clues are there it is ultimately hidden so that nobody got it nobody could figure this out until God revealed it to them by the spirit a supernatural process God again is concerned to get this message out he didn't just let these apostles and prophets continue in their ignorance so he's done two things In grace, He's acquired them, and then He's told them something. And then, He scatters them everywhere. He sends them out to preach far and wide throughout the city of Jerusalem, and into Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the Gentile earth. This revealed, mysterious message. When they were arrested then, they preached to the kings and the rulers and the guards who judged them, and when they were imprisoned, some of them, like Paul, continued to preach and wrote it down in letters and mailed it throughout the empire, letters like this one. Letters that would then come to the people and they could be read by them and by us. God is at work behind all of this because He is graciously, sovereignly determined to bring this previously hidden message to, ultimately at the end, your hearts. But actually not ultimately at the end, because through you to others. That's what God is about. That's the logical conclusion of seeing that that he called out particular people and then told them what they could never know and then scattered them. That's the logical end, is that he wanted everybody else to know. But it's also what the text hints at. Look how Paul describes himself here. A prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Or, in verse 2, God's grace given to me for you. God's grace led Paul to a stewardship that led him to prison and led him to execution. And the point of God's grace was not just to give Paul a job so that he could be occupied and then to figure out how Paul was going to die. The point of God's grace to Paul was for you. The end of this process was so that the mystery, this message, this gospel would come to us. God was greatly concerned to bring the hidden out into public, to make it knowledgeable. That was his intent. All of this process of raising up particular men, revealing the mystery to them and then scattering them across the known world was purposeful on God's part. It didn't just happen haphazardly. It came about in the fullness of time when all of the details were by sovereign God arranged. When Roman peace controlled all the Mediterranean so that travel was safe and easy when the Greek language was spread throughout all of the world, the known world so that communication was easy when these details and others at just the right time when God worked all of these things together He sent His Son into the world to initiate this mystery and then He called out particular people and revealed it to them and sent them out so that it would be spread far and wide He has raised up particular men Revealed the message to them, scattered them, so that you would know. And that should do something in your heart. Intellectually, you're familiar with that process already. But it should cause you to say, God must really want me to know. And if you don't know what I'm talking about at all, if you're here and you don't really understand this, then at least take heart from this. God brought you here, and he through this whole process brought the message here so that the two of you would bump into each other this morning. You and the message. The message of hope in Christ. A gospel that you could never figure out, but it has been revealed. It is possible to have peace with God. Most of you, though, do know what I'm talking about. It should still cause change in your heart. It should still cause thankfulness and treasuring and trust to well up in you. It should still cause you to say, yes, I know that's how He brought the gospel to me, but wow, look at that again. He really brought the gospel to me. I wouldn't know otherwise. You wouldn't know otherwise. You wouldn't know Otherwise, not at all. I think we're all Gentiles here. And Psalm 67 would not be true of you. You wouldn't know if God had not driven this process. Thank Him. Revere Him. Give your heart to Him. He wanted to bring this mysterious gospel message to you. And the reason that he wants to do it is partially discussed in verse 6. It's the second point, the second observation here. In the mystery of the gospel, God has brought to you untold blessing. The gospel is not intriguing information. Something cool to know. The gospel is the means of untold blessing to you. And God wanted to bring that to you. Now take care here. It is it is habit of the human heart to immediately want to put ourselves at the middle of God's plan. I've cautioned against that a number of times. We are not ultimately what God is ultimately about the grace of God that comes to us is ultimately, you remember the phrase from chapter 1, for or to the praise of His glorious grace. God's praise, God's worship, God's glory is at the center. But part of the reason it's so praiseworthy and so glorious is what it does for us and to us and in us. So take heart, rejoice. There has been great blessing that has come to us, but also remember in your mind that it ultimately is for the praise of God. Look at verse 6 now. This mystery is that the Gentiles are... And there's three things. I like the NAS translation here because it, it correctly reflects the original. These three things are all kind of set in parallel. And the NAS says, fellow, fellow, fellow. Three things. We are fellow heirs with believing Jews, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the promise. Fellow. This is the mystery, and this is part of the untold blessing. These three phrases are each a little bit different, but they also are interrelated with one another, and they're pretty closely interrelated with some of what we've been talking about before. So what I'm going to do here is look at each of the three of them briefly, and then step back and try to get a a briefer larger picture as to what the whole verse is getting at first fellow heirs the Old Testament made clear that the people of God believing Jews had a great hope for an inheritance an inheritance here and now in this life on this earth if they kept faith with the covenants very physical things in that blessing But also, an inheritance was promised to them in the next life. In the age to come. Discussed a lot of places. One, I'm persuaded, I think, that the last chapters of Isaiah are talking about this age to come. The new heaven and the new earth. There's some disagreement about that. But I think that because those phrases are picked up and repeated in Revelation 21 and 22, that's what it's pointing us towards, the eternal blessings of God. If it's in those chapters or elsewhere, what is certainly clear is that the inheritance promised to faithful Israel was here and there, both. The mystery, the inheritance of these believing heirs, those physical blessings, yes, but more importantly, the spiritual blessings that the human heart longs for. The mystery is that of that inheritance, the Gentiles are also fellow heirs. That's a mystery. But they are fellow heirs, guaranteed it by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. They used to be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but now they are fellow citizens, brought in and joined together with these believing Jews. It used to be that if you were an Egyptian or a Greek, And you wanted any access to this inheritance. You could become a God-fearing Gentile, but you stayed at the perimeter. If you wanted access to the inheritance, you had to pack your bags and go up to where the presence was in Jerusalem at the temple. But you'd still remain a second-class citizen outside unless you packed a little knife because you weren't going into the temple unless you were circumcised. You could get full access to the inheritance of Israel but you had to become a Jew. That's what it used to be. Not the case anymore. The great blessing to us now is that we are fellow heirs with believing Jews. Now there is discussion to be had yet about how much and of what and in what ways. I'm persuaded, plenty of people in this church are of a different persuasion, I'm persuaded that there is a very full joining together of the promises and the inheritance I think that's what this verse and others here about this oneness are getting at. People are of different opinions. What it says right here is that we are full heirs, fellow full heirs. We are also fellow members of the same body. The second fellow, of verse 6. This is actually a difficult word to translate. If we were to compare different English translations, we'd see it a little bit differently. And it's difficult because it appears that Paul made the word up. It doesn't appear anywhere else in any Greek literature that we have anywhere. It seems that Paul has something in mind, this joining together, and he can't find another word that adequately tells it, like he wants to say it. So he makes up a compound word like fellow body members. You are now fellow body members. It's a mysterious word, but I think that he's trying to get at something stronger than the other language that he had available to him. All who are in Christ, all who by grace have been saved through faith, this one people, this one body, this one new man of whom Christ is head, all are fellows joined together, equally, radically linked. We have established already a radical unity. We do have to work at maintaining it. We have to work at maintaining the unity of of peace and the bond of the Spirit. We talked about that already. We have to work at maintaining it, but not at creating it. We have been joined together, fellow body members, with one head, Christ, Christ, at the end of chapter 1 we saw, has been set up as head over all of the creation. But he is uniquely head over us, his body, the church. And just as in a physical body, it it is absolutely impossible to conceive of my arm walking off and separating itself from my head. It's ridiculous. It's equally ridiculous that we, a part of this body, would walk off away from one another or away from the head. We need to picture that. We need to work for maintaining that unity. But the body has already been formed. We are fellow body members. Christ defines us as our head. He gives us direction and purpose and he binds us together. We are also fellow partakers of the promise. The final fellow. This is most intriguing, I think. The Gentiles are again fellow or co-somethings, that's clear. But what gets a little intriguing is trying to figure out what this means to be partakers of the promise. You see, it has to be a little bit different than that inheritance, otherwise co-heirs and co-partakers are exactly redundant. It's got to be a little different in some way. And as commentators wrestle with this. They come to some different conclusions and are all trying to figure out what it means. What I think is happening here, and what I'm going to say here is, is certainly true. I'm not entirely sure that it's what he's trying to get at with this promise. So what I'm going to say is true. You can trust it. But weigh it for yourself as if that's what he's getting at about the partakers of the promise thing. But what I think is going on here is an integration of the previous two times that he's used the word promise in this letter already. See, he tells it to them as if they just know what he's talking about, partakers of the promise. There's two times it's come up already. First, chapter 1, verse 13. We read how they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Interestingly, that phrase, promised Holy Spirit, is not unique to Paul. Elsewhere in the Bible, too. You can look at the end of the Gospel of Luke and you see where Jesus himself describes the Spirit as the promise from the Father that was coming. Then in Acts 2, when Peter preaches his second sermon right after Pentecost, he describes the Spirit as the promised Holy Spirit. Paul in Galatians 3 also refers to the promised Holy Spirit. Here he talks about the promised Holy Spirit. Certainly this idea of the Spirit being promised comes from the Old Testament, from passages like Ezekiel 36 or especially Joel 2 where God promised one day coming in the latter days in the New Covenant to pour out His Spirit on His people. The expectation was set up due to the promise of God that the Spirit would come. Now, we've got to think, why would the Spirit be important? Not just so that we can have the Spirit, because of what the Spirit does. Think back when we were in chapter 1. We saw how the Spirit mediates to us. Is the conduit or or the pipe or the wire, if you will, through which the spiritual blessings of God come to us. All that stuff in chapter 1. The Spirit brings heaven down to us here. The Spirit produces fruit in us. And most importantly, the Spirit mediates to us the presence of God. Spirit is promised to us from long ago and finally comes. And the greatest thing that he does is he brings to us in our hearts God. It's the first use of promise in this book. The second one is in chapter 2, verse 12. There we see the phrase, strangers from the covenants of promise. Certainly, this is a little bit connected to all this inheritance. That was being discussed earlier when I talked about the first fellow, the fellow heirs. In the covenants, Jews were promised many things. It's as if God said to them, In this covenant, I promise to you many blessings, a great inheritance, land, peace, prosperity, generations to follow. But most importantly, I promise to you myself, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's at the center of all the the promises of the covenants. That one. Without that one, the rest of them are entirely insignificant. No faithful Jew would have said, great, I'll take the land and the prosperity and the promise and I don't need you. No faithful Jew would have said that. Instead, the response of Moses would have been theirs. Moses, when God said, I'll take them into the promised land, but I'm not going. Moses said, then I'm not going. Because if you don't come, I don't want to go. It's going to be way too hard. And the blessing of you, I won't have it. That's the perspective. The covenants are promising many things, and at the center of them is the presence of God. The Spirit mediates to us many things, the center of which is the presence of God. See where I'm going here? I think the way we integrate these things is to look at them and say, there's two things going on. The Spirit is promised, the center of that promise is God. Many other things are promised in the covenants, the center of those things are God. The ultimate, greatest, most significant thing that God has promised to give His people is Himself. To dwell among them by His Spirit. And I think 2 verse 18 and 2 verse 22 are pointing at a similar idea. Look at those. 2.18, through Christ, access in one spirit to the Father. 22, that new temple built into the temple where God dwells by the Spirit. I think Paul's working at the partakers of the promise is a bunch of stuff that would be similar to the inheritance of which we are fellow heirs, but it's narrowed a little bit to the promise is the Spirit and God in particular. As Colossians would describe the mystery as Christ in you, God can live in you by the Spirit. In the mystery of the Gospel, stepping back now, we Gentiles have become Fellow heirs, we have become fellow body members, one glorious body, and we are joined there, fellow partakers of the Spirit. If you stop and think about these things, they are untold blessings. We have access to the great inheritance that God has promised to His people. We have access to the community of the saints joined together where God uniquely dwells. He dwells in us individually, but He dwells in this body also. Talked about that last week. And we're a part of it. And we have access to the promise of the Spirit indwelling us God's presence made personal. These are fabulous blessings. Amazing, outstanding blessings given to us through the gospel, through this mystery. How does Psalm 67 become reality? How do you, a member of the nations, come to worship and to revel in and to be joined to the God of Israel? Through this message, through this mysterious gospel... A gospel that in an entirely unpredictable manner tore down that which kept you and I and all of us out. It tore down the law that separated us. It resolved this tension of God is the God of Israel and God wants to be the God of the nations. It resolved it by tearing down the barrier between the two. It's as if, think about it like this, it's as if this religious law that defined Israel its separating worship system that the Gentiles were not a part of this law it's as if it was a highway on which only Jews could travel if you wanted on the highway you had to become a Jew it's As It's if it was a highway that was leading to the Messiah and all the blessings of the Messianic age and periodically as they're traveling down this highway they'd see little road markers Messiah at 97 miles Messiah 43 miles Messiah next exit And you've got to get off at the next exit. Because if you don't get off at that exit, you're no longer going towards the Messiah. You're going away from Him. All the believing, faithful Jews got off at that exit. And they were joined there in that new place, in that new man with believing Gentiles. Believing Gentiles can't get back on the highway, but who cares anymore? The highway has been abolished. Paul says if you want to get back on the highway, you've got to keep all of the law. Don't be circumcised. Don't follow any of it. Don't go back on the highway. That old highway, the law that defined Israel is no longer significant. You don't have to become Jewish to get to the Messiah. In the gospel, in Christ through the gospel, last words of verse 6, in that gospel there is untold blessing for you. You've been connected to God. You've been joined to Him. And God was drastically, intimately concerned to make sure that that message got to you. He called out particular people and He told them what they would never know otherwise. And He sent them out and committed and and communicated that message to you so that you could have these blessings. That should stir your heart. Paul is trying to show you the gospel in here in just another little different way because he wants to grab your heart and change you on the inside so that when we come to 4, 5 and 6 you will say yes I will follow him God is a God who blesses me he must have blessing for me in these commandments as well yes I will follow him even where it doesn't make sense to me yes I will obey and pursue Him with my whole heart. Not to say, I pay you back. Don't misunderstand my words. Be thankful to say, in my thankfulness I'll pay you back. I'm not ever going to try to pay you back. I'm going to look back and see what you have done, and see that it is firm foundation to believe that you will do more. That's what God is after here. All of the peoples can praise Him. Because of this gospel message, all of the nations can be glad in Him and can sing for joy in Him because of this message because His determination to carry this message to all the nations. There are a lot of times when I think about this message and I want to shout for joy, I want to make a loud noise about it, And there are other times when it affects my heart in a different way. I don't know if you work this way or not, but I can be emotionally moved on either of these two extremes, exuberance or a retired, more sober contemplation. I know joy there too. And I want to ask you, do you ever just stop and think about this? I know for most of you this information is familiar already, but do you stop and think about it? I had opportunity to do this a month ago at our last Communion Sunday. I stood here and I watched all of you, maybe not all of you, but many of you, take the cup and take the bread and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As I watched that, was a certain sober joy and thankfulness in my heart because I looked at you and I watched you pray, watched you talk to your children, and the thought that was coming to me was the people of God. The people of God who would otherwise never have been the people of God. Never. You never would have even have heard about it if God hadn't been so committed to bring it to you. Do you stop and do you think about it? It should move your heart somehow. It should grab you. It should cast a perspective on all the other stuff that we fiddle around with. The people of God because of God.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org.